Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, state-of-the-art, streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio USA, nestled in our highly erotic bunker somewhere in Los Angeles area, following program produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. True crime uncensored. Last time I looked, which is often, I am still the legendary Burl Bear. The man in the lawyer chair isn't there. Howard Lapidus filling in for Don Waldman, or Don Waldman filling in for Howard, filling in for Don. Neither of them are here. Uh, Howard's off at some luncheon with Dr. Dre or Dr. Drew. <laughs> I always get those two confused. <laughs> yeah, well, one's talented, folks. Yeah, okay. That's what with the headphones. Uh, and, uh... Thank you, thank you. Dr. Dre produced. Dr. Dre produced. Thank you, Dr. Dre. Hey, so uh, I want a funky cold Medina. <laughs> Speaking of funky cold Medina, I got Carrie Drobin on the phone. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Carrie. Hi there. Hi. Thanks what are you wearing? <laughs> what, what are you wearing? <laughs> Tell me you always sweats. ask me. I always ask you what you're wearing because wrapped in leather, you never look better. I've seen, I've seen those photos of you straddling a hog or whatever they call those things. Uh, you're funny, very funny. Yeah, yeah. Your fame is growing incrementally, so your fame has now reached the height of your heels. <laughs> Yeah, well, that is my vice. I do love shoes. Yeah, great shoes. I, I posted, because I'm a true crime expert, I, I posted pictures of your shoes on my blog. Uh, <laughs> because these are the important things. It gets new meaning to pumping iron. Yes, yeah. Well, she's got pumps and she's got flats. And uh, she's and neither. And she's neither. Uh, your, your fame is growing, and I mentioned that. Because in case our audience doesn't know who you are, you are uh, very famous. And that's why they don't know. I have to explain to them who you are. She's a defense attorney. She defends the, the innocent, the weak, the guilty, the downtrodden. The huddled masses. Yeah, you're needing to breathe free. She gets people out of the slammer when they probably should have been out a long time ago. And they, they even send her... Uh, Artsy fartsy drawings of her as like uh, a ninja warrior or something. Wow. Yeah, I know. I get gifts all the time from my clients. Even the, nice. even the ones that were sent away to prison. <laughs> yes, I had one that actually worked on a charcoal drawing for me for about three years and sent it to me on a pillowcase. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah there you go yeah, yeah. Well, when you're, you're in prison you just do what you can I guess I have Carrie Drobin on my pillowcase <laughs> well, he's probably not alone is that what they call it these days <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah well no wonder he was arrested <laughs> uh, okay back to why she's famous uh, she's famous as an attorney also this book uh, by Carrie Drobin that I read was Running with the Devil which was billed as an exciting documentary uh, Documentary uh, expose uh. of the ATF's brilliant <laughs> infiltration of the Hell's Angels, uh, in which I read the book, which is a great book, by the way, uh, where it revealed that the ATF had about all the brains of a piece of used Kleenex <laughs> and totally just made fools of themselves, and the Hell's Angels laughed all their way, uh, all the way out of the courtroom. 
that was, was a, a that was a great book, though. I mean, it was hysterical. I mean, it was upsetting to read, to to realize where our tax dollars were going. One of those bizarrely failed uh, enterprises. Yeah, well, it was, was studied for, for many selling, years. Selling Mexican drug lords. Uh, uh, um, uh, automatic weapons? Yes, because that way you can trace them. That's right. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, so well, you're, you're, right there. You're, you're right there in Phoenix where the uh, ATF made that brilliant decision. <laughs> yes, the Fast and the Furious. Yeah. yeah, well, before that it was called, what was it called before that? Uh, I'm just reading about that. But it was it goes back to about 2006 when they came up with this great idea of, of letting guns walk. Kind of like tagging uh, wild animals in Wild Kingdom and then you find them later and you know their history. We'll just let these guns walk. And, uh, right. and they did that without arresting anybody from 2006 to 2009. It was actually Obama. Well, no, Matt, I'm giving you the accurate history. From 2006 to 2009, no one was arrested. The uh, Phoenix ATF decided to use the same brilliant theory. <laughs> and uh, that was when they started calling it Fast and Furious because most of the people they were selling to were in a car club. Right, right. And another brilliant act on the part of the ATF. Do they, do, is there an intelligence cap? <laughs> well... I think there's a, there's plenty of uh, plenty of stories to tell where those come from. So I think it's uh, no shortage of, of material for sure. Well, my my only uh, involvement with the ATF is uh, a fellow who was a convicted felon who was not supposed to have a firearm showed me his firearm and the bullet with my name on it. Oh, and, yeah, <laughs> that's a real <laughs> that's a real upper, and. Uh, uh, is that one of the stories that you wrote? <laughs> no, it's a true story. I haven't written, written about this much. And about six to eight months later, almost a year later, I get a call from uh, an ATF agent wants to talk to me. Oh, okay. Thought maybe figured I smoked too much. <laughs> Roll the tobacco. Uh, no, he says, this, is it true that so-and-so uh, showed you a bowl with your name on it? And I said, yeah. How'd you know that? He goes, we have our sources. Hmm. He says, you know, he's not even supposed to have a weapon. I said, well, no, he also wasn't. How he got, he was putting on a rock festival. And uh, the way he got the permit for the rock festival was by saying he would arrange to have the people supplying the dope for the rock festival arrested. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, he was wow. a swell fellow. No. I don't know where he is now, but I don't think I'll have him on the show. Yeah. The, uh, then you wrote, uh, and then she wrote, uh, a lot of motorcycle gang books. Yeah, I somehow got got pigeonholed with that, but it's been a it's been a great um, a great ride, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you have any uh, Mongols, vagrants, and uh, whatever they're called, to show up at your door at all hours of the night. Hopefully not. No, I, I think so far, you know, they're they're okay with what I've written, or at least I'm not the target. So that's, well, that's I, I felt sorry for the guy in the uh, uh, running with the devil who infiltrated the Hell's Angels and then supposedly <laughs> killed somebody, and then they figured out well we. If we really did kill somebody, there'd be a body. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I should stop the entire investigation. Leave this guy hanging out there. Whatever happened to him? Did he uh, the, the motorcycle gang ever catch up with him? Are you talking about pops? Are you talking about the pops? The one who went down to the, the informant? Is that what you're yeah, talking about? The, yeah, the uh, the inside guy, the guy who was working with the ATF. Yeah. Well, you know, he's he's still okay. I mean, nothing really happened to him, but. Um, not yet. <laughs> not yet, yeah. <laughs> Other than him losing his mind, you know, he kind of went a little crazy there. I think that was actually characterized in the book a little bit, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. sort of the reader. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed that book. So buy that book, first of all, to give you an introduction to her. And then uh, the, the one you did, I love this story. You can give me the background on it. A guy gets busted for drug smuggling. Take it, he's in a motorcycle gang. He doesn't want to go to the slammer, so he makes a deal. I'll arrest all my friends. <laughs> Well, a true American hero. <laughs> he, you know, it, it, Charles is Charles is a, a really neat guy. Actually, he's um, he he is a true definition of a hero. I think because you know he he winds up well. He's a he's a bad guy turned really really good. You know, mm. so you talk about the the actual conceit of, of Hollywood. You know, that's what they're always wanting to do is take a bad guy and and see what he what he's like as a good guy. Mm-hmm. And um, Charles really devoted his life to turning his life around and putting a lot of the bad guys away. So he worked basically for five years as a biker gang infiltrator, formally making $50,000 a month working for Ooh. as a drug dealer for the Bulgarian mob. God, do they have any so. openings? That, that pays <laughs> better than broadcasting. <laughs> and I'm sure so, it's I mean, not as dangerous. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, yeah, he was. He was facing 20 years in prison and then, you know, decided he's got to do something good with his life. He's got to turn it around. And I and I really think he devoted all that time really as it was repentance. You know, it was repentance for his his actions and he wanted to turn his life around and basically save well, his life. Well, he certainly put himself in harm's way more than one occasion. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he infiltrated three biker gangs and he's really the only private uh, contract informer to ever do that and successfully do that. So he actually was the success story, you know, unlike the actual ATF agents in Running with the Devil, you know, they weren't able to bring anybody down, but but Charles did, and he did it without any experience at all, which is really quite extraordinary because when he signed up to do it, um, he had never infiltrated a biker gang. And he he was a really clean cut looking guy because he he had posed as a businessman before when he worked for the Bulgarian mob. So he didn't have any tattoos. He wasn't Hispanic. He wasn't, you know. And, and here he is going to infiltrate the Vagos, which are predominantly Hispanic biker gang in in California. So <laughs> that was a logical choice. <laughs> is there? I look yeah, like I mean, a Bulgarian businessman. I'll infiltrate a biker gang. Is there any possibility that his lack of experience assisted in his success? I think, Just well, I think... being more natural? Yeah, I think maybe being more natural, but he's also a really smart guy. I mean, he, um, he's, his, uh, I think probably his greatest gift is, is his gift with people. You know, his ability to be almost chameleon-like and, you know, infiltrate people that he really had nothing in common with, but be able to relate to them on a certain level. And... I mean, you know, he not he not only infiltrated them, but he he prospected for them, and then became officers in three of probably the deadliest biker gangs in in the world. Yeah, that's like the uh, the Godfather, who was the informant for the FBI. The guy running the mob was the uh, yeah. I mean, that's just kind of strange stuff. You can't, yeah, it's, can't it's trust an extraordinary talent. <laughs> it's it's quite a talent to be able to do that and to be and to be liked enough. Now, I mean. Uh, his journey was not without high risk and, you know, lots of uh, attempts on his life. And so it's, it's quite a compelling story, actually. I mean, it's much more than just infiltrating the three biker gangs. It's also his story of how he, um, you know, had to testify against them. He overhears really like a, a gangland style murder. 
and has to go in and record it, you know, almost to the detriment of his life. Mm-hmm. He winds up in the witness protection program, and he, he almost winds up losing his life several times. That's like uh, Kenji Gallo, who we uh, had on the show, who is a... Wore a wire for the feds. They wanted to do it for like a month or so. They wound up doing it for seven years. Oh, wow. Uh, in the mob. <laughs> and uh, there were a couple of attempts on his life uh, just before he came on the show. Uh, people do get death threats for coming on uh, this program. I don't know if you've had any. But <laughs> I find it interesting because most people come on this show just plain die. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. Or their careers do. But, uh, <laughs> well, I hope not. I hope that's not part of my legacy. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, you, you, see, you, you cheated it by, by almost being killed the day of your first scheduled interview on this program six years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that well. I'm I know. Sure, you're sure you do, as you're probably still paying off the hospital bills. <laughs> oh, the bumper, that, that bumper. <laughs> yeah, how weird is that, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, she's I, on I, her I way home I'm, to call into the radio, and instead she's hit by a truck or something. <laughs> didn't get out yeah, of you guys. You guys had to do the show without me. I was like a proxy. I yeah. Guess. Well, Julia Fay was here, and we had her pretend she was you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then you came back on and you were you were dandy. Now, here is the big success story of, of, of your success that you held this back for quite a while because you weren't allowed to talk about it. And that is your your, your book about the vagrants, the mongrels. And the, <laughs> I never remember the title of the book. Um, uh, uh, a group of nice boys. A group of nice boys who ride their bikes uh, is going to be a TV series. Yes, very exciting and actually really unexpected. It just kind of came out of the blue. And, uh, you know, the next thing I knew, I, a Canadian film company had pitched it to the History Channel, and they are doing a um, a series on it, six episodes that are going to air. I they, they don't know the exact air date. They're saying early March, um, possibly early March. And we don't know when or the day or the now, time. Are they doing air. this as a drama or are they doing it like a documentary? No, it's actually a drama. Oh, a it's drama. Got, so you got somebody uh, playing the part and all that? Yeah, Damon Runyon is playing Charles Falco. Damon Runyon? I thought he was dead. <laughs> no, it's I another it Damon Runyon. It's a different Damon Runyon. Oh, because I used to yeah, read his books when I was a kid. Yeah. Not the I, I old guys. Not the old guys. This morning was a canyon up in the hills. <laughs> oh, Have you seen any of this yet? Have they started filming it? Yes, they did. They they filmed actually. They did a week's worth of filming in Phoenix. So I was really lucky. I got to see them on set. Um, doing some of their motorcycle stunts, and um, they filmed at a local watering hole within that, near Gillespie Dam. So they they did a lot of really cool, cool stuff. It was really fun to meet now, the actors. Now, is the guy and, they they cast in the lead role is anything like the real guy? Uh, you mean in looks or in, in, in personality? In both, <laughs> either or. Um. Yeah, I think they I think they cast him really well actually. I mean, I I think he's going to be he's going to be a draw. I think he's going to be a really good fit. I mean, he's he's the same age as Charles was during these infiltrations. So, I think that they they chose well. Um some of the things that they did a little it, it was interesting to see what they had changed, you know, from the book. They they borrowed a lot from the book, but they also um, for purposes of time, I think had to uh, combine some characters together. Oh, sure, and yeah. Combine some scenes, so it was that was kind of fun. I'd never seen that before. And lots of action and adventure. 
Lots of action, yeah. It should be a really exciting show. I think it's very apropos that it's um, airing, you know, on the heels of Sons of Anarchy ending. So I think yeah, Mark a was uh, mentioning that he's a Jew. Uh, wonder if the strategy-wise, if it would have helped uh, if Sons of Anarchy was still going, or if people who want their Sons of Anarchy fix and Sons of Anarchy has gone the way of the pterodactyl. Yeah, but uh, it's going to yeah. be five months from the end. Yeah, right. Six months. Right. Well, the the uh, buyer's demand will be at its peak. Right. Yeah, I hope so. I, I, I hope so. that was strategic. <laughs> now, did you, do you get like an executive producer credit on this? Um, I I should get a credit on it. Yeah, I, if I don't, I'll be really upset. Yeah, she's like, hey, look, yeah, you go in there and say, listen, I want an honorarium, you know, because those executive producer credits mean the person did absolutely nothing except cash a check. And, uh, I wanted to say job. based on you know based on oh, yeah. I, I didn't somewhere better be all there. I yes, hope. yes, but. you should have your name across on Kerry Drobin's <laughs> undercover gangster, whatever it's called. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's called Gangland Undercover, which is very ironic, but it's, um, you know, it's similar to the other um, Gangland series Mm -hmm. that was on, but that was a documentary, I mean, those were documentaries on different gangs that that I also appeared on uh, a while ago, so... Have you done any Deadly Sins episodes? Probably not, have you? No, I haven't. That's because you're the motorcycle stuff. Yeah, although I do have an episode coming out on American Greed on February 7th, it's on the Socialite Scoring book, they did a an interview on on that show just um so i think it's i think that's airing on february 7th so it's weird yeah i go from the biker gangs to this uh, major murder in tucson that, yeah. <laughs> that i wrote about now how, <laughs> how do you do this you're a full-time attorney defending the weak the dispossessed the those with no money <laughs> so no wonder you're writing books to make a living Right. <laughs> Which is not a wise idea, Carrie. <laughs> From a financial planning standpoint, being an author is not your ticket to great, great wealth. I know, well, I know. I know I unless know you write that. about a boy wizard. Yeah, well, <laughs> then maybe that's her next one. A guy infiltrates a warlock group. <laughs> I know, I didn't have to try fiction. <laughs> yeah. Although it's easier to sell nonfiction because with fiction, they always want to make sure you know how it ends. Yes, I know. I know, because I have a fiction novel due this month and I'm, hmm, exactly how do I end this? I know, I know you and I have um, some dialogue on that. Uh, yeah. Pearl, Pearl, the butler did it. The butler's no butler. With a candlestick in the <laughs> That is always the problem, isn't it? Trying to come up with the ending. Well, you know, and it's Mickey, Spillane, Mickey Spillane always wrote his endings first. Oh, that's so smart. he knew where I was going. So he knew where it was going, and, and um, my other fiction novels, I always knew the ending before. And I think is, is I, I've developed. I think I told you this: a sympathy for my bad guys. And <laughs> I, <laughs> I, hmm. I wonder song. why. It's yeah. Time <laughs> well, I seem to have a problem with the endings and the middles. So <laughs> well, they say all <laughs> books have a beginning, a muddle, and an end. <laughs> Yeah, I seem to be stuck in some kind of writing function. Uh, stuck in the muddle with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also always wrote, uh, yeah. what do you call it, the summary, the summation? Summation, first. Uh, and then oh, th- th- use that as his outline of his presentation. Yeah. Yeah. But see, when, oh, I, well, when I write these true crime books and they have these criminal cases, I look at what the prosecutor's summation and his timeline is and what the defense's summation, their timeline is, and then go back and compare it to reality. <laughs> yeah, that's a smart idea. That's a good way of doing it. And uh, so you find out some interesting things that you wonder, how did they miss that? Like, there'll be things that... They didn't they're, so, they're so close to it that they'll miss uh, certain certain points, which I find interesting. We're going to take a 60-second break to go shopping for shoes online. And... <laughs> 
We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored with Gary Drobin. Mark. Featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. Okay. But not the woman with the massive hooter. She's not here anymore. <laughs> no offense, Carrie. I wasn't talking about you. Uh, <laughs> oh, excuse me. Carrie Drobin, you there, honey? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> oh, good. Didn't didn't lose you. Carrie Drobin, attorney, uh, bon vivant, a shoe expert, crime hottie, loves her rock and roll. <laughs> And yes. uh, I, I collect her photos. <laughs> what color is your hair this week? <laughs> we gotta look online. <laughs> yeah, what color is it? The is it the light color now? Yes, blonde. Yeah, blonde. So Before fun. she was a brunette, but blondes have more fun. <laughs> Our producer, Magic Matt Allen, has a question for you. Bit of, a bit of a non sequitur because this has nothing to do with your television show. However, uh, you being a defense attorney and all. Uh, did, how closely did you follow, or you're probably not old enough to have been following it at the time, but the uh, the Manson case, how much research have you done into that? Well, I haven't done a lot of research into it, but I've definitely been intrigued by that case. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't really followed it, but I, I'm definitely familiar with it. Because I, I, uh, I somehow, you know, when, you, uh, when someone sends you something on YouTube, somehow you find other things on the right-hand side, and so somehow right. I found I'm into Manson now again. There's a fellow who's going to be on the show yeah. who has a new book called uh, Something About Unheltered Skeltered, hmm. basically establishing that uh, Manson was railroaded. Is it, is it, this is, okay, Burl, this is, yeah. this is the... It's incredible you mentioned this because you know you being the lefty and all you and you and I might be on the same page on this. I'm watching this Geraldo interview with him. Uh-huh. You know this classic Geraldo, unedited, unfiltered. Right. And he's I, I don't 
get the impression he's as nuts as everyone makes him out. And he he stands by the fact that, A, he wasn't there. That's right. And, and I don't think they ever put him no, there. No, he was never there. All right. But he also says that he never, he, he you know, his, his whole thing was, whatever you want to do, whatever feels good to you. So without, you know, he's implying perhaps do something nasty, but I don't think he ever gave the orders to kill. And listen, I, I got a feeling he's not a nice man. He's well, a he's magnetic personality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However, he stands by the fact that, you know, he believes that he, that I think perhaps he was railroaded. I mean, There's, uh, the, 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 I was talking to the fellow. Are we who happy wrote, he's in jail? I think it's a good thing. Well, he what? wanted to be in jail. When he left uh, McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary, he he said, I really don't want to go because he'd been institutionalized his whole life. Since he was nine. Plus, uh, he's also, it has been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and he's never been given any medication. He also has yeah. eczema. Well, that's not why well, he, he made the statement on the Geraldo show that they were drugging him up constantly. You Probably know, then, in, yeah. In since he's been in the slammer, yeah. though, they haven't. Exactly. Uh, at this time. And I think he's still there. Yeah, yeah. we're going to have the guy on who wrote the, the new book. That's so. interesting. I, I, I look forward to uh, speaking with him. And uh, back to your lovely uh, dress. She, with is, the, she uh, is lovely. The, your lovely guest <laughs> with the pumps. <laughs> oh, so Karen, oh, but she's, got, she's got heels that are like skyscrapers. <laughs> <laughs> King Kong I wear those all the time. <laughs> King Kong is climbing them as we speak. <laughs> you know what, little bike lanes chasing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's your take on that uh, concept? That that Manson's innocent, that he didn't do it. Um, well, you know, here's the interesting part. You know, I mean, I spend I spend my days in the jails, and I represent um, some really, um, you know, some of them are crazy, some of them are just um, evil. But um, I, you know, I think the the what fascinates me about the job that I do is I'm always trying to understand why somebody does what they do you know what is the pathology behind how they got to where they are and you know in most of those cases they do have some mental health history they do have this long journey of you know a diagnosis where they never got treatment or they you know they might be um, suffering from terrible uh, trauma domestic violence you know what have you but they don't ever get treated for it so they become you know exactly what their environment made them so I think that part is very fascinating and Manson quite possibly has that in his background because that's how you know I mean I do a lot of post-conviction work and so my job is really to go and investigate behind the scenes you know what happened to these people why did they become this way why did they commit the brutal acts that they do and and I can say that you know and unfortunately in 99% of the cases they've done what they are there for um, so I, I, I would think you know, Manson is, I, I'm sure, insane. Um, whether he actually did it or not, I don't know. But he certainly had a magnetic personality, um, a forceful personality that made people do his bidding. So if he made, if he didn't commit the actual crime, people certainly followed him. They were very, he was very influential in, in that sense. And I can see that. With a lot of the it's kind of like me with my with. overwhelming charisma that just draws <laughs> people like soup stains to a silk tie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely see how that can happen. You know, when you have these forceful personalities. I mean, I have a, I have a client now who has three personalities. 
And, and I'm like, how do you know which him. one you're talking to? Well, that's the fascinating thing. I never do know. I mean, sometimes I go and he's one personality. He the first time I went to see him, he warned me that he had two other personalities and that I might I'd never meet you know this person again. And he named them off and. You know, he went through all of the, the Rule 11 proceedings, and of course, everybody found him competent. So now I have to deal with his three different personalities. Yes, I was like, how would you do this? No, no, no. That's just that's just two faced. <laughs> no, right. No. Well, and, and so you know, here's Ouch. the defense, right? His oh, other sorry. personality did it. So I. <laughs> well, that you know, that uh, you're probably familiar with the, the classic movie with Richard Gere and uh, Edward Norton. Uh, yeah. The Tenant. No, no. Primal Fear, right? Primal Fear, fear, yeah. Yeah. That's just classic. Yeah, I mean, and it's really, it happens more frequently than... Was playing. (laughs) Yes, we know. Don't get the ending. Yeah. Yeah. And they do. They do play it off. What I find interesting is that uh, people are influenced more by television than they are by real life. And I was complaining one of the true crime discussions on Facebook the other day. All these people, they just... Claim insanity and and get off. And I went, excuse me. <laughs> in reality, that's in the movies. In real right. life, less than two percent of people ever uh, have an insanity defense, and it's almost always uh, jointly agreed upon by the prosecution and the defense, and doesn't go to trial like, like that, like it does in the movies. Right, right. But you know, yeah. people think they see it. They see it on TV, and they go, well, "That must be the way it really is." <laughs> no. Well, the, you know, the the common comment. I mean, you know, we have the the whole Jody Ari's trial um, going on here, which has just been a, a national sensation. It's, it's just crazy. People are lining up to, to watch it. Tickets. They basically are, you know, and I've had a couple of cases that pre- happen in that same courtroom. So I watch all these people line up to watch it and it's just, it's crazy. And, and the, the common complaint that I hear from jurors and spectators is, is that it's so boring. You know, when, they, when they're actually <laughs> sitting in there. What are the things going to happen? She's going to murder them all over again in the courtroom? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're listening to all this. They're expecting, I don't know what they're expecting, but it's definitely not I've what they had, see on uh, TV. I've had the, the great displeasure to, uh, to have participated on an inordinate number of trials uh, for uh, a regular citizen of 14. 14 jury duties? 14 trials. Oh, my God. 14, not 14 wow. jury duties. 14 oh. trials. Wow, you must be very objective. Uh, well, you know, I'm, no, I, just I'm, looks the, gullible. I'm the nondescript every person. <laughs> uh, one, one particular case, uh, I was an alternate, but uh, I wasn't allowed in a courtroom during deliberations. I had to sit on a bench in front of the court all day. I couldn't go into the jury room. I couldn't... Um, one night, they forgot that I was there and left me when the court adjourned. Oh, my God. It was like 7.30 when... Uh, when uh, Security guard finally asked me. Marshall came by and go, what am I doing? <laughs> That's like when I got really stoned and fell asleep in the oh movie they, S- they Saved Hitler's Brain, starring Dana Andrews. Ah, great film. And oh. uh, I was in college at that time, and I smoked a bunch of pot and went to the movie and passed out cold and woke up at 4 in the morning still in the theater. I could oh have eaten God. every Snickers bar in there and got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a riveting movie. Yeah. Yeah, well, black and white too. They saved Hitler's brain in black and white. Starring oh Dana God. Andrews. Probably, <laughs> your... probably a true story. Filmed as it actually happened, <laughs> because Hitler made it to Argentina with the rest of his buddies, where yeah. he was recognized by more than a couple people who didn't like him. Hey, that's that's Hitler over there. Um, well, well, so he he didn't die in the bunker. No, they found the the. Uh, the <laughs> they saved Hitler's brain. Turned out that the skull and. Uh, 
they finally decided to do a little examination of this is supposedly Hitler's bones. Or, unless Hitler was a 35-year-old woman. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't, wasn't Hitler. The Russians found, uh, found the bunker and they sealed the evidence. Yep. Those crafty Ruskies, they're always up to something, you know. <laughs> um, so are you, uh, uh, do you have another project uh, on the horizon? Well, I have a couple of projects, but you know, I'm I'm really superstitious, so I can't talk about them. No, don't ne- never talk uh, never talk about them ahead of time because people will think we already read it and not go buy it. Uh, right, right. I know. No, don't yeah, talk no, about I do. <laughs> it's oh. taking me a lot longer than it normally has. Oh, for some reason, yeah, but. I know. I know the feeling. <laughs> you know, do you ever wonder sometimes if perhaps the muse has taken the last train to? Cl- I, I wonder about that every day as I wake up at 4 a.m. and I stare at the computer and I wonder what's happened to the inspiration that I used to have. Yes, <laughs> so, uh, being is that I stay up quite late and I go to bed about the same time she gets up. <laughs> and it used to be, before she was on Facebook 24-7, never logged out, always about 3 a.m., the little green light next to Carrie Droman's name would come on. And go, well, okay, she's padded out there now in her slippers and sitting at the computer, staring at that blank screen going, what the hell am I going to write today? Yeah, that's been pretty much the, the, the mantra, you know, for the last six months. I think I'm just too tired. Well, what, like do you, what do you do? You, you write from like 3 a.m. until 6 a.m. and have breakfast and go to work? No, I actually, um, I wake up at 4. I write from 4 to 7. And then um, I alternate that. Sometimes I work out, you know, at 4 a.m. So oh, so you're a fitness, fitness person. <laughs> well, you know, she's got to have strong legs to, to, to yeah, stand on those heels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. got to be able to walk on, in those shoes. So. That's how she stands on higher moral ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not always successful, you know. I mean, sometimes I just sit up and I'm, I'm up. I'm looking at the screen and nothing is coming, but... Yeah, I I know the feeling. My best writing time, supposedly, unless there's a deadline and a gun to my head, is from about uh, 10 o'clock at night till about 3, 4 in the morning. Oh, wow. I wish I could write. But if there's a deadline and I've got to get it done no matter what, it's amazing that if you, as you say, put your ass in the seat (laughs) and uh, start hitting those keys, sooner or later enough drivel comes out that you can uh, pawn it off as brilliance. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, my scariest writing experience with with my uh, second book, Prodigal Father, Pagan Son, I I had turned in my first draft and my editor told me I had to rewrite it in first person so i had to change the whole point of view and it was due in five weeks and it was thanksgiving and i had to write it over the holidays i I literally wrote that book in five weeks i I did the interviews for two years and then i wrote it in five weeks and i i'm i don't think i ever saw the light of day i mean i was sitting on my chair for like 20 hours straight i thought my hands were going to break off i mean it was it was absolute terror. <laughs> I know, I know, I could identify with that. In what was it, 2006 or something? Much to my amazement, uh, I died. <laughs> I had a heart, I had a heart attack. Uh, oh my god! I was actually on a, a bus to the airport with my son, flying back to uh, Los Angeles after being at my my mom's birthday, and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, I, I felt a little peculiar. And so, anytime you don't feel girl, well, the you're best thing feeling best peculiar. thing to do is have a cigarette. So I got off the. <laughs> I got off the bus and lit up a cigarette, and that didn't help. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe if I had a soda pop, I'd burp it, I'd feel better. So I sat down on the bus, and then I, I really felt weird. I didn't have any pain, but I just felt strange. And uh, the bus driver turns to my son and says, does he have seizures? Oh, no. And I 
through this fog, I said, yes, but not like this. Oh, <laughs> and the wow. next the next thing I remember is someone slapping me across the face and going, stay with me. And I didn't even know we were dating. I opened, <laughs> <laughs> I opened my eyes and said, like, you know, EMT, emergency guy, you know. And I said, I just want to go to sleep. I said, don't, that's, no, no, don't do, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> slapped me a few more times. But I went to sleep anyway and woke up in a hospital and was told, boy, are you lucky. You had a heart attack in front of the hospital. Uh, you were just all clogged up. We put it went with a roto-rooter and there was no damage to your heart. I said, heck of a wow. deal. He said, if I hadn't had the heart attack in front of the hospital, my luggage would still be going around at LAX. I would have, wow. I would have died on the plane on the and way And on your the way son down. would have been sitting there. On the, yeah. And would, yeah. Wow, and then, then you could have written about a near-death experience. So the, yeah, well, so uh, what <laughs> I had a book due. I had the book Stealth due for Sony. Now, I wasn't about to tell Sony that I'd had a heart attack because you know what would happen. They'd cancel yeah. the contract. They want all the money back. <laughs> so I, I didn't tell them. And uh, I had two uh, stent surgeries, came back, locked myself in a room at the Ocean Park Weekly Hotel in Santa Monica, oh. and uh, cranked out the entire novel in just about, like, with you, five weeks. And a few years later, I was out to dinner with the uh, head of Sony Publishing at that time, Grace Ressler, and I mentioned the heart attack. He goes, when did you have a heart attack? I said, oh, when I was writing Stealth for you, said, why didn't you tell us? I said, because I wanted to get paid, that's why. Isn't that funny? It's like the things that you do just to keep that contract going. Oh, so yeah. you don't have to like, pay the money back. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to give them back that whopping nine grand. It's like a huge advance. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But that's another thing that the publishing... I was talking to Lowell Caulfield. The other day called because he got his royalty report. He got a nice check, uh, but he, no one can understand royalty reports from publishers. <laughs> no, I know. They're all another language. Uh, yeah. Can you explain this to me, Burl? I said, no, no, you're a libertarian. I can't explain anything to you. Burl, it says in plain English, you are getting screwed. <laughs> yes, that's right. A, the publisher's taking all the money, and you're getting like a pittance from no, it. No, he made good money. You know, when he wrote his brilliant book, uh, what's called House of Secrets, oh, yeah. Yeah, hardback for Kensington. $50,000 true crime advance. Wow. A three book deal, 50K each. Now the most they will do is 12 5 Yeah, it really sucks. I mean, if, if I had started doing this long, long time ago, I, I actually might not even be a lawyer. That's right. Well, Jack, <laughs> the great Jack Olson, uh, by the dean of American true crime, by the, the best true crime writer ever, he told me before, just his famous last words before he died, were, Burl, get out of true crime while there's still time. No, isn't that sad? Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, he said, otherwise you'll wind up like me. I said, well, I'd like to be as good as you. I said, I don't mean equality. I just mean a frustrated old man. <laughs> we're going to take a 60-second break and to try on those uh, those lift ones over there. <laughs> take the break. We'll be right back in 60 seconds. Skyfall It's the theme to the new James Bond movie The third movie Starring that new guy Skyfall is the theme to the brand new Bond That's out in November 
Skyfall is the name. Hi, this is Zach Gustine, and if you own a cell phone, and we know you do, or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now safe to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. You know the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. See that, Mark? You stay on script. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, yes, we are back. I am the legendary Burl Bear, encouraging you to run out or sit down, either one, and buy my latest masterpiece. I managed to recycle one. Man Overboard, the count of the resurrection of Phil Champagne, the 20th anniversary edition. Yes, 20 years ago. Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. They've been going in and out of style, but they're guaranteed to make you smile. And so is Man Overboard. It's the uh, the one true crime book that is funny. Not just peculiar, but actually amusing. I don't think anybody gets raped in it either. There's no motorcycle. There are motorcycle gangs in it, yeah. But does the kid get the dirt bike? No, the kid never gets the dirt bike. <laughs> he takes his own death, right? Isn't that the story? We well, he says death? he didn't fake it. He just simply didn't contradict it. <laughs> 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 yeah, Phil didn't know he was dead until he read it in the newspaper. All things considered, he took it rather well. So does brother Mitch, the beneficiary of a uh, $1.6 million key man life and insurance he policy. Yeah, well, he gave him half of the money and said if... Uh, if your brother's body is never recovered or if he shows up alive, uh, you got to give the money back. Well, he didn't give the money back, and they finally just gave up and said, oh, hell, keep the money. Yeah, Phil's 87, yeah, Phil's 87 years old now, and he's still charming as can Man, be. Uh, should so I take out an insurance policy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then, then we'll have Carrie lend your motorcycle. <laughs> I was given a motorcycle as a parting gift when I was fired from KOL Radio. Really? Yeah, they fired everybody and then gave them prizes out of the prize room. And they said, Girl, we're going to have to let you go now. And I said, but I don't even know how to ride a motorcycle because I knew there was another one in the prize room and I was next in line. Did you ever learn how to ride it? <laughs> no, no, no. I gave it to my uh, bipolar uh, cousin who tried to, <laughs> tried to escape on it with no gas in it and was just pushing it down the freeway. <laughs> Oh, well. <laughs> That's a whole oh, another story. This is sad, yeah, yeah. Broadcasting is not a career choice, Carrie. If you're thinking of giving up being an attorney and a true crime writer and going into broadcasting, don't. Yeah, you yeah. do it, Zach Gustine can do a show with Andrea Kay in San Diego. Thank you for your future. For you. <laughs> no, I think that was my day job for a while. Yeah. You should, well, you could always get a job uh, on, you know, there's a new host of, uh, what's it called, what you should wear or what you shouldn't wear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Where they, they make over people. Yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> Although, uh, there's a, a, a woman I know that actually was Ryan Stiles, a tall man of comedy's first real big serious girlfriend. They lived together for quite a while. And she's really good looking. And so they came to her and said, we want to put you on a makeover show and totally make you over. 
Yes, and why? Don't I look good now? He says, no, that's the point. We'll make you look really awful first, and then we'll make you look like you already do. <laughs> and when oh I God. am backed yeah. into a See, corner, that is when life, I come huh? alive. Yeah. See, I learned improv from the greats like um, Drew Carey and Ryan Stiles. Robin Williams. Oh, man, would I love to go head-to-head -head with him. Oh, that would be exciting. I, I'm Mark from Mark. Well, I'm, I'm Bork from Smork. Nanu, nanu. Zubli, blue, blue. Was that supposed to be amusing? No. Oh. That was supposed to be... Who uh, was that? Who was that masked man? Steve Carell. Who? Steve Carell. Well, I'm certainly glad he's improved his accent then. <laughs> it's, it's a good Robin Williams, though. Yeah, yeah, it sounds just like yeah. it does now. So what's, uh, what's this lovely story about murder in Arizona? Oh, a socialite scorned. Yes, that was... That's um, the worst thing you can do to a socialite, <laughs> based on my experience. Uh, actually, Burrow, it's not paying her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, uh, that's the Gary Triano story. He was a, a real estate tycoon who was uh, blown up in front of a very swanky resort in Tucson. Ooh. And it started a 10-year investigation into who did it because the um, the victim had a lot of connections or so-called connections to organized crime and um, those never really panned out but they thought he did because it was a bombing so it involved multi-jurisdictions and you know tons of investigation into it and they ultimately discovered that it was his ex-wife oh Ooh, wow Ooh. yes so was she, was she a demolitions <laughs> expert <laughs> No, it was a really interesting, um, diabolical story, actually. She hired a hitman to murder her ex-husband mm. because um, the child support that he was ordered to pay wasn't enough. I mean, that's... Oh, that'll, 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 make you, that'll teach him to make bigger payments next time if you kill him. <laughs> uh, it's crazy. But the, the really interesting part about that story is that it, it was really, for me, it was like a... A journey into the minds of two um, complete sociopaths, and I, they had conversations with each other. One of them recorded everything. He kept um, computer files of all the recordings. Is that the hitman? The hitman did, yeah. And the, the whole idea was she was supposed to pay him a portion of life insurance policy that she was going to get uh, from her ex-husband's death. But what she didn't figure out was how she was going to pay him. Mm -hmm. Because you can't just write a $400,000 check and not have a hitman in the memo. <laughs> yeah. So they spent 10 years. She spent 10 years paying him. And she had to pay him in cash. So she would do these elaborate trips. You know, she would... Um, Aspen at the time, so she would do these elaborate trips to nearby towns to cash $300 worth of checks and send them off to uh, Florida where the hitman was living. And they, it, I mean, the whole idea of, of losing your identity was a major theme in the story because they had all this money, but they couldn't spend it. That's a problem. They you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they hit me. What good everything. is it if you can't spend it? Exactly. I mean, it's just a fascinating story of this. Uh, I mean, the hitman especially. I mean, he had to. He couldn't even hold down a job because he couldn't use his name. He had no social security number. Well, that's like nothing. being in the witness protection program. They give you a new name, but you can't go apply for a job because you have no resume. Right. Yeah. It's like you don't exist. I mean, that that whole theme of having no identity is just so fascinating to me because it's, uh, you know, how do you how do you function in the world if you don't have an identity? I mean, this. 
That's why they call it an identity crisis, Carrie. Right, exactly. (laughs) Well, I mean, he actually had studied up on it, how to disappear. Mm-hmm. And and you know, for my research, I had to do. I had to read a lot of books on. on well, how to you know, you could you could make it much simpler. For I think it's two ninety nine. You could go on Kindle and get Secrets of a Hollywood Private Eye by Fred Wolfson, with an assist from Burl Bear. And the entire last section is how to disappear. Well, I think oh, the easiest cool. thing to do is to become a true crime author. Yeah, or be signed by William Morris. <laughs> <laughs> Either of those work. <laughs> There's a great joke in, uh, was it, uh, Albert Brooks' movie, Looking for Humor in the Muslim World, wherever he no, goes to yeah. India. And there's a call center uh, there in India, of course, where all the call centers are. Someone's answering the phone, <laughs> William Morris Agency. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was in Fidel Night, so everything was cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you talk about that case reminds me of what I haven't written. <laughs> <laughs> that I was thinking of writing, but no one cared. Uh, when I was up in Anchorage, Alaska, these guys were, uh, cops were telling me about this case. This guy who got away with it. He got away with murder. There's nothing we could do. This multi-millionaire guy. He uh, um, blows up his wife. He kills her. And uh, then uh, his ex-brother-in-law, who's after him, uh, you know, was so sure that he uh, killed his sister. He gets bumped off and... It never, he never got punished for any of this. He got away with all of it. So I said, well, this is an interesting thing. I'll, I'll investigate this case. So I did. And I discovered he was innocent of both cases. Wow. The, his wife got blown up because she had a car absolutely identical, a white blazer or something, parked in the same parking lot as the newspaper reporter for the Anchorage paper who was doing an expose on uh, some corrupt uh, union officials or gangsters or something. So there was a hit put out on her, go get the white Bronco in the, uh, in the parking lot and put a bomb in it and they put it in the wrong car. Oh my God! Wow! And then the the uh, the brother or brother in law worked for the airlines, the pilot, and uh, he got into a big uh, fight with the union guys up there, and was just causing all sorts of problems. And someone got so mad that they uh, took out a hit on him, and they uh, got the guy who did the hit, and they wanted to get him to get the the guy that they were sure set this up, you know, on the yeah. phone, so they could get him. You know, uh, we call incriminating himself. Yeah, like a confrontation call. No, 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 no. He didn't incriminate himself. Gee, this is horrible. I <laughs> 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 aren't you happy? He said, "No, no, God, I mean, he didn't like me, but gee, he was my brother-in-law for a long time." And I mean, <laughs> oh. no, so uh, turns out he was innocent on both. But it's made for a fascinating story because if you just looked at it from the outside, it would appear as if he may have been behind it. But then again, there was. No motive. Yeah. And here's one as an attorney. I mentioned this to Erin Moriarty when she was on the show, and she could not believe this. But for validation, you can go to the book Masters of True Crime, edited by our friend R. Barry Flowers. And there's a, a, a thing that I wrote called the Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy. Mm. Imagine this. You're the defense attorney. Your client is convicted of a crime by the jury, for which he's never been charged. How <laughs> is that possible? Ah, read the, it, it, it was actually, it actually transpired. A fellow was found guilty of a crime for which he was never charged and was never able to defend himself. Wow. And on appeal, the state Supreme Court said, well, yeah, it is uh, rather problematic. 
<laughs> However, we'll let it slide. Wow. <laughs> I'd never. Oh and everyone was going, that's impossible. You can't have someone convicted of a crime they haven't been charged with. Oh, yeah, look at this. That's crazy. Wow. I can't believe that. Yeah. Yeah, they, they had to invent something. They, the, the jury goes to the judge and say, is it possible for us to charge him with this and convict him of this if we do this and do that? Just, yeah, do whatever you want. <laughs> was it in a, like a, an outlying county? You know? No, no, this is a big case. This is a big, this was the wow. Alaska mail bomb case where the guy was, they sent a mail bomb to a uh, Did this guy, guy send a mail bomb? Uh, wow. ooh, 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 the ooh. person who was convicted for a crime who wasn't charged. No, uh, he, he had, um, he was, he had some property and on the property were some blasting caps and some other items, all perfectly legal. And the people who did the bomb said, Hey, you know, we got some stuff sitting over there on your property. Will you please bring it over? Uh, the dynamite or whatever, the blasting caps and stuff. And so they got him on possession, uh, of, uh, a bomb or something. <laughs> Well, oh my God! And it was never charged with that. Well, you know the bomb. I mean, the bomb is what got the, um, you know, what led investigators to this hitman eventually because they they start to, get, you know, go through the debris of it and mm -hmm. they can identify where the different parts were purchased, what kind right, of bomb it was. Right, and, exactly. That's what they know. did in this case as well. The uh, there were little. Uh, parts of one of the things that they bought at Radio Shack embedded in the guy's knuckles. Yeah. And that's yeah, it's amazing. The great one, if you're familiar with this, I can't remember where the case was, but this judge opens up a package and it's a mail bomb and it explodes. It just sucks, of course, all the air out of the room and pulls the paneling off from the walls and then snaps it back. So they had to tear the paneling down, you know, to look for stuff behind the paneling. And they found the stamp that was on the package and on the stamp was the thumbprint <laughs> of the person oh who mailed it. This is why it doesn't pay. Crime doesn't pay. You always find no, out. The hours are good. The hours are good, though. <laughs> Crime doesn't pay, but the hours are good. Are you going to write up about any of your, your cases? Do you have any cases that are cool enough that... Uh, you know, I, I have some really interesting cases, but I, I have to get the permission in order to write about it. So it's kind of hard to, to write about the cases that well, I Well, but is, is, isn't it uh, public? Uh... Yeah, it's definitely public. I, I mean, I get a lot of them on post-conviction, so they're still kind of going through that process. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I yeah, I mean, the people, some of the people I've represented have some really crazy, crazy stories. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I would love to write a film. I, I, you know, I've I would, uh, it so far. In Perry Mason, those old Perry Mason TV shows, they always had the thing where, where during the course of the trial, Perry roots out the real killer, you know, mm -hmm. and someone confesses in the courtroom. You don't see that very often in real life, although that did transpire in Snohomish County a few years ago. The person transpired? The person transpired. This is strange. I'll see if I can squeak this one in here. Uh, what happened was this, this kid gives a ride. Kid, I mean, old enough to drive a car. He's married. Maybe he's 21, 22. Gives a ride to someone he recognizes. This guy says, drop me off downtown. So he does. Later, the kid who's Hispanic is stopped by the cops on suspicion of being Hispanic. And they uh, search his car and on the passenger side... Between the door and the seat is a leather pouch. And inside that pouch are a whole bunch of drugs. They charge the kid with possession with intent to sell. He says, I've never seen that thing before in my life. 
Well, he goes to court. The guy who it belonged to, the guy he'd given the ride to, happens to be in the courthouse on some other issue entirely and sees the guy's wife. He says, what are you doing here? And she tells us, oh, my God. He goes into the court and says, Your Honor, stop. Stop the presses. That belonged to me. The kid gave me a ride. I dropped that in his car. It's not his. It's mine. Wow. And they said, sit down and shut up. This isn't new evidence because the case isn't over with yet. Oh, my God. And the kid was sentenced to, I like, thought, six years or something in prison. The craziest case that I actually won was a guy who sat in prison for eight years for an armed robbery that was completely fabricated. It was fabricated by an FBI agent at the time who was um, involved with a confidential informant. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> that is And that, that came out on post-conviction. That it, it never, like, nobody ever knew about the CI and, or the affair or anything. But wow. he had to fabricate the case in order to keep his relationship. Well, see what, us, see what people will do for love. We're all yep. done now, Carrie. Great to have you on the show. Good luck with the new TV series and all that stuff. And we'll Thank talk you to you so again much. soon. Love you. Love the shoes, too. <laughs> Always great having her on the show. Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence, next at Outlaw Radio. I love me 15.